First Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you wear when you are called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I've had uh, our good administrator, Kath, tapping me on the shoulder for my uh, minister's report for the AGM. It's, it's always a joy. <laughs> it's not far away, Kath. But the looming AGM focuses me on the fact that uh, We've just ended one year and another is beginning. And as a minister and congregation, we need to be reflecting on uh, where we've been and, more importantly, where we are headed in our mission as followers of Jesus Christ, which, as Jesus gave us, is to go and make disciples of all nations. Which, by the way, has been made quite a bit easier for us here in Australia because all the nations have come to us. Those from all nations are our neighbours 
in our increasingly multicultural community. And Christian mission is not primarily about what other Christians do in other parts of the world. It includes that and our supporting that, but primarily Christian mission is what you and I do and what we do in our own neighbourhoods and communities. So it's vital that we have a clear vision of how we will do that and uh, what that mission is. Now, in five years, 15 years and beyond. And uh, 1 Corinthians 1 uh, verses 18 to 31, therein Paul tells us what the heart of that mission is when he says, we preach Christ crucified in verse 23. And in case you thought that didn't include you, Preach here doesn't just mean those on the preaching roster. It means the witness that every single member of the church family has, you and me. So we're going to see how we do that this morning by asking four questions. One, what do we preach or witness to? Two, who do we preach to? Three, who's qualified to preach? And four, how do we preach it? How do we witness? So, firstly, what do we witness to? Well, obviously, we've just said that, verse 23, Christ crucified. But what is that exactly? Uh, The Bible is comprehensively clear that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came into the world to save us. But why did he need to die, be crucified, in order to do that? In uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's story of The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins from the Shire, by accident, comes across a little ring and it's made of a, a weighty, dullish metal, but it's pretty enough. And it can do a party trick or two. For example, it can make you disappear when you wear it. That might be a fun novelty to surprise the friends with. Uh, But all up, it seems a reasonably inoffensive, uh, fine little keepsake to hang on to. Yet as the saga continues in The Lord of the Rings, it turns out that on this little ring, the fate of the whole of Middle-earth depends. And that if the realm is to be saved from untold evil and destruction... The ring must be destroyed in the volcanic fires of Mount Doom. And to get it there, it will be necessary to risk the lives of many noble people of Middle-earth and a number of noble hobbits too. Such drastic measures pointed to a drastic problem. A small, inoffensive looking ring was responsible for endangering the lives of all middle earthlings. Similarly, the drastic measure of the Son of God needing to die on the cross to save humanity highlights and points to a drastic problem from which we needed and need to be saved. Very little word, sin. Uh, The Bible is also comprehensive in pointing out that that the primary 
thing that Jesus came to save us from coming into the world was from our sin. Yes, sin seems very small and inoffensive to most in our day and in our society. Not much harm to hang on to for a little while. But because sin threatens to separate us from God, the one author and redeemer of life, it actually threatens to cut us off from true, full life itself and can ultimately cut us off forever. Christian writer Steve Brown says, every person, every human being is needy, sinful and worried. And all people know this deep down. Even if we won't admit it or even if we vehemently deny it, it comes out in everyone's secret wondering, in the end, am I okay or not okay? Am I acceptable or not acceptable? And this is true for all people, however outwardly good we might be. And this is the truth that Jesus' crucifixion tells us. All of us are sinners, lost and cannot save ourselves. Only the Son of God could do it and it took his death to accomplish it. Our sin needed to be taken to Mount Doom to be destroyed. And this is not an easy or smooth message for us to witness to, especially in the 21st century West where we're supposed to affirm people whatever they think or do. But it's an essential part of the truth of Christ crucified. In other words, it's essential for salvation and fullness of life. So, this means that our salvation depends entirely upon grace and not upon us. Paul says in another place, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, it is not by works, so that no one can boast. In the crucifixion of Christ, God reveals our lostness as a part of also opening his limitless grace to us. Grace, that is what makes the truth of Jesus' cross the best news in the world. Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And 100% grace, which our salvation is, doesn't mean 0% us. It actually means the opposite. It actually means 100% us too because Jesus shares with us and includes us in 100% of what he is doing in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. He calls, commands us to be a part of that. So you see, limitless grace means limitless response from us. And since Christ's grace in the cross is for all, it lays a claim on all to respond to it with faith, repentance, obedience and joy. As Psalm 139 asks, 
Where can we go in the world where we can escape from the God of all grace? The answer the psalm gives is nowhere. Nowhere to run to, baby. Nowhere to hide. And in our witness to others, we need to gently, graciously confront them with this reality. Don't just repeat the 21st century Western cliche, you can believe whatever you want to be true. No. All must come to terms with the universal truth of Christ crucified. We are lost, we cannot save ourselves and we are given grace that can save and fulfil us eternally. That's what that truth is. That's what it is that we witness to, Christ crucified. Now two, who are we to witness to? Well, Paul names his audience, the Jews and the Greeks and our audience is actually the same. Uh, but by Jews, I'm not just meaning those who belong to the Jewish faith, but everyone who operates on the same kind of basis as they do. And Paul tells us what that is. He says, Jews demand signs, that is, those who require a demonstration of power before they will really accept that something is valid and put their trust in it. Aussies demand signs. We're rugged characters. We look for where the power is before we decide what we're going to put our money on. And this category includes Christians who won't accept something as valid or trust God without a demonstration of supernatural power or a miracle. There's nothing wrong with supernatural power and miracles. Indeed, they ought to be part of the picture of life in God's kingdom. The problem comes when we base our faith and, and lives on those signs of power. Why is that a problem? Because Paul tells us that the greatest power is the crucifixion of Jesus. Does that look very powerful? No, it looks like weakness. But if Jesus had come into the world only in strength to attack and defeat evil, that would have meant he would have had to have destroyed all of us. But because he came in the weakness of the cross, dying for us to pay for, cancel and forgive our sin. Therefore, he has brought grace and salvation to you and me and all who will receive it. That's why Paul goes on to say in, to the Corinthians that it is to the weak and to the nobodies that grace and salvation are given. Any weaklings here? Any of you wearing out, not quite as you used to be? then that's good news, isn't it? And of course, those who appear strong actually need to learn that they are in fact weaklings too. 
Their power can't help them one jot in their relationship with God. They need the saving graces of God just as much as the very weakest person. And so we have a witness to the weak and just as much to those who think they are strong but need to learn that they're actually weak. So uh, that's the Jews. The other half of Paul's and our audience, the Greeks. Anyone like a good Sablaki? Uzo? Um, well, not only talking about those Greeks, but Greek here stands for all those who base their confidence in life on cleverness, wisdom, being smart. It was a bit of an ancient Greek thing. They, might, they majored on philosophy and public debate, that is, being smart and demonstrating it. But via the ancient Greeks, it's also become a bit of a postmodern Western thing too. Uh, a few years back, didn't Australia dub itself the clever country? Clever words and arguments command people's attention, inspire confidence and lead people to follow them. Again, there's nothing wrong with being rational and smart. In fact, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, as we'll see, uh, goes on to deal with that. Faith doesn't mean that we throw our brains out. But the problem is when we base our faith and lives on our cleverness. Why is that a problem? Because as Paul tells us, the greatest power on which we should base our lives is the message of Christ crucified. Jesus dies in order to win. Does that look clever to human reasoning? No, again, it looks like all foolishness as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 1. Although Paul will go on to show that once we come to know God's truth, it is the true great wisdom. We'll be coming back to that next week. But if salvation and fullness of life were only available to those who are clever as the world judges, where would that leave most of us dummies? But because salvation came by grace, the grace of the cross, what seems foolishness, Therefore, it gives truth and life not based on cleverness. And so, it's given to all, including the most simple. And so, Paul says the gospel comes to the unwise in human standards, the foolish, the low and despised in the world. Again, here... The truth is that even the very clever are foolish. Their cleverness cannot save or give them life. The clever must also learn that before God they too are dummies. So again, our witness is to all. Those out there who know they're dummies and those who are yet to discover that they're dummies. So, it's our audience, who we witness to. Three, who's qualified to do this stuff, to witness? Well, if the gospel is only for weaklings and dummies, 
then those who witness to its truth would also have to be weaklings and dummies. Any qualifiers here? So, have a go, you mug. Anyone and everyone who has a real faith in Jesus Christ can witness by what we say and what we do. This is because the validity and power of our witness does not depend on us, neither our strength nor our cleverness nor anything to do with us. It depends on the message of Jesus' cross, his grace. All we have to do is to trust in Christ and the power of that message and in faith say and do whatever we can and Christ and his message will work in and through us. When I was um, reconverted as a young adult, I was spiritually and morally in quite a mess at the time And a young, recently married Christian man, I'll call him Mark, took me under his wing to befriend and help me wherever he could. And he was like an amazing rescuer to me at the time and full of wisdom. And he welcomed me into their home. He gave me hours and hours of friendship and talked at great length about his faith in Christ and how Jesus had helped him through crises in his own life. On my side, God was doing great things in totally reprogramming my life with his grace. But uh, it was only much later that Mark told me how when I first came to him that he felt at the weakest he'd ever felt as a Christian. He was full of doubts And he was struggling. And as weak as he was, Jesus led him to trust him and just do and say the best that he could. And he said how he was blown away to sit there and watch how Jesus was working in me, seemingly through what Mark was saying and doing. See, it's not dependent upon our strength our witness, but only on the power of Christ and his message. And what this means is that you can venture to witness. You. Pray for God to give you opportunities to say or do something, however small, When the opportunity comes, do it and see what happens. Have a go. And we need to be, you know, as we witness, we need to be always renewing ourselves and growing in God's word. We've spoken a lot about this, the vital importance of that. We can't give the truth away to others if it's not going into us in the first place. We always need to be feeding, sustaining ourselves. Lastly, briefly, for... How, how do we witness to it, to this gospel of Christ crucified? Paul says in verse 21, proclamation. Now, sure, everything we do expresses the gospel. 
our good works and our love for people. But at some point, something's got to come out of our mouth. Doesn't have to be what we've been hearing. Doesn't have to be powerful, clever, or sophisticated. Just in our simplest words, what we believe to be true. I would say that probably we wouldn't normally make a statement of our Christian faith on our first meeting with someone. I think normally we'd get to know them a bit first. But at some point we need to speak it. Probably not on a soapbox, on a street corner, although maybe. But probably for most of us it would be in talking to our neighbour or a shop assistant, or a workmate, or family members, etc., when the opportunity opens up. It can start by just acknowledging that you're a Christian. These days that will usually spark a follow-up question because people know so little about it and they're curious. So, think. Look, just do this. Think believe and pray how good the news of Jesus Christ crucified is to you. With all of our sin, our weakness and stupidity, in great grace we are saved and forgiven, given hope, eternal life, all of God's best gifts. And then simply say that in your own words to another human being. Amen.